You are listening to a sermon from the First Baptist Church of Ewing, a Christ-centered church in Lewis County. Hear from the word of the Lord this morning, Joshua chapter 9, verses 1 through 27. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea towards Lebanon, uh, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? Well, they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt. And all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon the king of Heshbon, and to Og the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtorah. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey, and to go and meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day that we set to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. And these wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not seek or did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. And at the end of these days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and they reached their cities on the third day. And now their cities were Gibeon, Cherubith, Bethor, and Kareth jerim But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest the wrath be upon us because of the oath that we have sworn to them. And the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as all the leaders had said of them. And Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us like this, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. And they answered Joshua, 
because it as was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because you and, and we did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. That is the word of the Lord. Uh, so just for the record, uh, I am not a fan of cheesy pastor jokes. Um, I heard way too much of them growing up. They make me cringe. Um, so this is probably going to be about the only time you will hear me tell one from the pulpit. Um, but it is relevant to our text today. Um, but I heard someone uh, tell a story a while back about a guy who was just looking for some direction in life. And his typical habit was just to open up his Bible uh, to, you know, the first verse that he came across and read, you know, whatever scripture the Lord led him to and just see what, what God had to say to him through that passage. So the first verse that he happened upon when he opened up his Bible uh, was Matthew chapter 27, verse 5, uh, which is uh, the passage that says, and Judas went and hung himself. Well, obviously he wasn't, you know, that wasn't a particularly helpful passage to him as he was trying to figure out what he should, you know, do next with his life. So he thought maybe he would try again. So he flipped over to another page and his finger, you know, found uh, the first verse that, that he saw on the page. And that ended up being Luke 10, 37, which says, go and do likewise. Well, he flipped a final time hoping for maybe something different. And he finally came to John 13, 27, which says, what you are about to do, do quickly. Now, that's a terrible uh, joke, uh, but it, I think it illustrates a good point. I mean, I think this is really how um, a lot of people actually read their Bibles. You know, they just read just a small part of a text uh, without really understanding the context. And they just assume that every story in Scripture uh, is intended to act as an example for you to imitate. But you shouldn't want to go and do likewise and betray somebody like Judas did. You shouldn't want to go and do likewise and commit adultery like King David did. And you're certainly not want to, you don't want to go and do likewise and imitate the lying, deceiving practices of the Gibeonites in our story today. So this passage uh, doesn't exist in our Bible to tell us that sometimes it's okay to lie and deceive others and you can get rewarded for it. Um, that's not the point of this passage. Th this is actually a story that tells us that despite our past sins, we have a God whose mercy more than outweighs that multitude of sin in our life. Uh, Joshua chapter 9 is a story that's often misunderstood, uh, and it can kind of be confusing if you don't read it 
carefully, which is why you, you don't often find it in children's Bibles. Uh, a lot of vacation Bible school material kind of skips over it because a lot of Christians really just aren't sure what we should do with this passage. I mean, you have these Gibeonites. Uh, they're from the land of Cana, which means that they're supposed to be the bad guys. And the Israelites are, are meant to go defeat them. But then at the end of the story, you have them seemingly uh, be rewarded and, and even blessed despite some pretty bad and immoral choices they make and the ways that they lie and, and deceive the, the Israelites. But as we study this story, uh, you have to keep in mind that the Gibeonites, they're not intended to be models of honesty for us to follow or imitate. Their lying was wrong, and so we shouldn't be imitators of that. But if you can look past their deception, then the Gibeonites are a good model for something else. So I'm going to walk you through this story, and we're going to see a couple of, of realities. Uh, there's a couple of, of points I hope you'll see from this text. Uh, the first is how God can give mercy even to fools. And then the second is how God can also give grace even to foolish followers. Both those who are fools and who have yet to commit their lives to the Lord um, and even to foolish followers, meaning those who have committed their lives to the Lord, uh, they just don't always act like it. For both of these groups, the Lord can and often does pour out his mercy and grace. So let's start with the first reality about how God can give mercy even to fools. Uh, one of the best ways I've heard the difference between mercy uh, and grace described is like this, that grace is receiving special favor that you didn't deserve, while mercy is not receiving the punishment that you did deserve. So grace is, is like a gift of unmerited favor that you didn't deserve, but in God's loving kindness, he gave it to you anyway. And mercy is the avoidance of punishment that you did rightfully deserve, yet praise the Lord that in God's kindness, we don't always receive that punishment, even though we ought to. And God's mercy is what you see being lavishly poured out on the Gibeonites in our text. Now, we're told in verses 1 and 2 uh, that all of the Canaanite kings are beginning to form an alliance together against Joshua and the Israelites. Uh, they're starting to realize that if cities even as strong and as powerful as Jericho can't defend themselves on their own, then all of the cities and the people of Cana, uh, they need to be coming together and unite as one to fight against the Israelite army. But notice who did not join that alliance. It's the Gibeonites. And Gibeon was also a, another powerful, strong, fortified city like Jericho. Uh, so they, they, don't, uh, it, they don't join this alliance. There's something that is different about them and their actions that set them apart from the rest of the inhabitants of the land. So let's talk about them for a bit. And I want you to hear what the Gibeonites do wrong in this situation, uh, and then what they do right. So first, let's talk about what they do wrong. 
Now, they, they don't join that coalition with the rest of the, the Canaanites, and that's good. But then right after that, starting in verse 3, we learn that when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and they went and they made ready provisions and took out worn out sacks for their donkeys and wine skins, worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all of their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country. So make a covenant with us. So the Gibeonites lie. They know that Joshua and his army have plans to destroy all of the inhabitants living nearby. And so they lie and they say that they're not from around these parts. Uh, Rather, they're from some distant, far off land. And just in case you're wondering how big of a lie this is, uh, I looked it up on a map. Uh, The Israelites were camped at a place called Gilgal and the city of Gibeon was approximately 20 miles away from Gilgal, which means that the city of Quincy, Illinois, is is, is further away than Gibeon was to Joshua and his army. Even when you consider that the people uh, spent most of of their travels on foot, uh, this is clearly still not a, a far away land. They are their neighbors. They are nearby. And this isn't just this little white lie on the part of the Gibeonites. This is obviously a very meticulously planned and very elaborate deception. I mean, they went all in for this lie. They made all of their provisions appear to be worn out. Uh, They made all their clothes look like they had been patched and mended. Uh, They made their bread look old and dry and crumbly. Uh, so that it would just seem like their, their journey had took them weeks or, or months, all to make it seem and, and appear as though they're not Canaanites, so that the Israelites would make peace with them. So the Gibeonites are masters of deception, which is why verse 4 describes them as very cunning. And all of this really should remind us of the original master of deception, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden, similar to the Gibeonites, the serpent back in that garden was also cunning and crafty. And he came up with his own lie to tell humanity's first couple, Adam and Eve. They had been given permission, if you remember, to eat of any of the fruit in the garden except for one tree. If they partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then the Lord said that death, would come upon this couple. But that serpent lied to Eve, saying, oh, you will not surely die. And with that single yet significant lie, the enemy caused the entirety of humanity to fall into sin. I find it interesting that the serpent didn't invade the garden with an entire army. Um, He didn't use brute force or his strength uh, to force Adam and Eve to eat the fruit against their will, he he didn't have to do any of those things because he understood that deception is a weapon that is far more dangerous and deadly than any of the physical weapons of this world. 
So that's how Satan first attacked Adam and Eve. That's how the Gibeonites managed to outwit the Israelites. And that's still one of the prime tactics of the enemy today. He's the master of disguise and deception. Sin rarely, rarely ever has the appearance of sin. It's almost always wrapped up in some kind of lie, making it appear more enticing and better than it actually is. Sin will often start out by appearing as you know, innocent and insignificant and mundane, but that's actually what makes it all the more dangerous and deadly. So, so that's what the Gibeonites do wrong. Right, they lie, and this is a very significant lie. I don't want to minimize or uh, whitewash any of their actions. They were a scheming, shifty, uh, deceitful people. But let's also take a moment to talk about what they do right. The Gibeonites are, are clearly foolish to try to seek uh, the mercy by lying and deceiving others. But though their actions were wrong, their motivation behind those actions are actually quite pure. I want to skip down to verse 24 for a moment, uh, where the Gibeonites, they finally reveal the motives behind their lies. Uh, once they've finally been caught with their lies, the, the truth comes out. This is what they say, that it was told to your servants, to the Gibeonites, for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. So we feared greatly for our lives. So the conquest of Cana had been foretold on multiple occasions throughout the first five books of the Bible written by Moses. Because of their sin, the Lord was going to uh, rid the land of the Canaanites. And so the Gibeonites, who were a part of the people living there, they knew of their predicted destruction. And yet, they're not fighting against this prophecy like all the rest of the Canaanites. They're not even trying to defend themselves or argue that they don't deserve God's wrath or punishment. I mean, they witnessed what's already happened to Jericho and to Ai, and they know that they're soon to be next. Yet they are still hopeful that the Lord might somehow still show some mercy on them and that they might be spared from this destruction. And there's actually a lot of ways that the Gibeonites are very similar to Rahab. I know we've been talking about her on and off through this series, uh, but Rahab was also a pagan Canaanite. Like the Gibeonites, she had lived a life that wasn't exactly a model for us to follow. She was a prostitute. Uh, like the, the, the Gibeonites, Rahab was also prone to lying. If you remember back in Joshua chapter 2, uh, Rahab lied to the king of Jericho in regards to the whereabout of the Israelite spies. But both Rahab and the Gibeonites knew that the Lord's will was sovereign. And that whatever he decreed would surely come to pass. And so both Rahab and the Gibeonites reverently feared the Lord. They, they placed their faith and their trust in him. And it's actually because of that that Rahab and the Gibeonites were spared of that destruction that was originally declared on them. 
The Gibeonites, along with Rahab, are going to continue to be able to live in the promised land alongside the Lord and the Israelites. Uh, Really, the, the, the Gibeonites are not that unlike many new followers of Christ today. Uh, When someone first submits their life to Christ and becomes a Christian, there are many aspects of their old ways of life that are still present. Their lives don't miraculously become free from sin just because they give their life to the Lord. Uh, Their language may still be coarse. There may be certain addictions that they continue to struggle with. Uh, They may still lie at times, and they may still act a lot more like the world than they do Jesus. But if their faith is in Christ and his death and his burial and resurrection, then they still stand just as justified before the Lord than any other follower of Christ. And if the Holy Spirit has brought their lives from from death to life, then he will continue to be faithful to work uh, and, and bring about sanctification in their lives. And their lives will begin to gradually look more and more like Jesus. So that's what we see with the Gibeonites. They are foolish They're fool-hearted like many new Christians, and their lying and deceptive behavior, it certainly leaves a lot to be desired. But even though the Gibeonites are fools, they're at least fools who have a proper fear and respect for the Lord. And it's precisely because of that that the Lord gives mercy on them. Just look at verse 27 for a moment. Uh, Joshua and the Israelites, they do eventually spare the Gibeonites. They don't uh, kill them. And then we're told that Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord. At the beginning of this chapter, the Gibeonites, they, they were pagan outsiders, yet by the end, we see them being servants in the tabernacle, in the, the very house of the Lord. Right? This was an honor that even many of the Israelites didn't receive. Now, only a select few were permitted to work near the presence of the Lord, which dwelled inside that tabernacle. So, so the story of the Gibeonites shows the Lord's desire to pour out his mercy, not just on the Israelites, but on the nations. We saw a glimpse of that with Rahab, but now we see that even more clearly through the Gibeonites, this sinful people that were once destined for death now have been spared and brought near, literally physically near the presence of God. So we've seen the reality that God can give mercy even to fools. But secondly, there's, a, there's another reality that I want you to see here, and that's that God can give grace even to foolish followers. God can give mercy even to fools. He can also give grace even to foolish followers. Remember what I said earlier, that mercy was avoiding a punishment that you did deserve, and grace is receiving a gift that you didn't deserve. The latter is what we see happening in the life of the Israelites. We've talked about the Gibeonites for a while, so now I want to talk about the Israelites. The descendants of Abraham, 
They were a people that were uh, a, a people that God had chosen and who God had led out of slavery in Egypt and who had been following after the Lord for 40 years through the desert and wilderness and now into the promised land that he is giving to them as an inheritance. But even though they have been following the Lord, there have been many times where they have actually acted just as foolishly as the Gibeonites. Because remember, they actually weren't supposed to be wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. A journey on foot from Egypt to the promised land would have taken about 11 days of walking, less than two weeks. But, but the generation following the leadership of Moses, they foolishly failed to trust that their God was bigger and greater than any of the giants that were said to be inhabiting the land. They feared the enemy more than they feared their own God. And so an entire generation of Israelites had to pass away before a new generation could be permitted into the promised land. And even after entering Cana, we've seen that the Israelites continue to make a number of bad decisions. We talked just a few weeks ago about the sin of Achan and how he foolishly thought that he could get away with stealing from the Lord. And because of that sin, we saw that the Israelites lost their first battle against the city of Ai, a city that should have been easily defeated by Joshua's army. So the Israelites, they're supposed to be followers of Yahweh, but they have a track record of behaving in ways that are really no different than the pagan Canaanites living around them. And that's what we see happening with the Israelites in this story. The Gibeonites, they come to Joshua, they come before him and his men, and they feed them this intricate lie about being from some far-off distant land, and they ask for the Israelites to make a covenant of peace with them. And then what do Joshua and the Israelites do? Well, at first, they are rightfully suspicious. Just look at verse 7, where it says, perhaps you live among us then how can we make a covenant with you? So at first, they are rightfully suspicious, but despite that initial suspicion, by the time you get to verse 14, we read that the Israelites decide not to ask counsel from the Lord. Instead, they took a look at all these old provisions that the Gibeonites handed them, and they believe in this lie that they're told and then we're told that Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. Their, their gut instincts, or, or more likely the Holy Spirit, uh, initially told them that there was something wrong about this situation. Something didn't smell quite right, but they don't listen to the Spirit's warning. So I just want to take the last few minutes of our time and just look at a couple of applications that we can learn from that. Just like the Gibeonites, the, the Israelites and their, their actions are also not meant to be a model for us to uh, live our lives by. But there are a few things that we can learn. First, we learned that being forgiven from your sin doesn't mean that there still won't be consequences from that sin. 
Being forgiven from sin doesn't mean that there won't still be consequences. Back in Joshua chapter 7, if you remember, the Israelites lost that battle of Ai partially because they failed to seek counsel from the Lord before going into battle. They didn't even take the time to stop and ask if that was even the battle that the Lord wanted them to fight. And now just two chapters later, we already see them falling back into that same sin. They're they're trusting in their own wisdom rather than asking for the Lord's counsel. And fortunately, the, the, the Lord does give his followers a lot of grace in this situation. Even though time and time again the Israelites fail to trust in the Lord, the Lord still permits them to remain in Cana. And the Lord is still going to dwell with his people in this land, but there are going to be consequences that arise from their actions. They didn't intend to have to incorporate a whole new uh, people group into their own society, a people group that they're now going to have to protect and defend against other Canaanites. All the other inhabitants of Cana are going to see the Gibeonites as traitors. And now Israel has the responsibility not only to continue their conquests of the land, but now they also have to keep these Gibeonites safe. They're going to have to treat the Gibeonites as their own. And this isn't just something that Joshua's generation is going to have to deal with. This is going to be for many generations to come. Uh, Many years later, King David is also going to have to protect the Gibeonites from Saul, who will seek to have them killed. The Gibeonites will actually still be around all the way, even until the days of Nehemiah, when the Israelites return from exile. So, So Israel's actions have consequences that will reach far into the future. And the same is just as true for our sin as well. It will always have consequences that are far-reaching into the future. But there's also another application that we can learn from the Israelites. We've seen how being forgiven from your sin doesn't mean that there won't still be consequences from that sin. Uh, But we also see that God can use even your sin and foolishness to further serve his kingdom. God can use even your sin and foolishness to further serve his kingdom. Now, this is not an encouragement for us to sin more, uh, but it is an encouragement to know that even when you do sin, God can even use your own folly for his glory. It doesn't get much more comforting than that reality. You'd almost expect, as you're reading this story, for God to tell the Israelites, it is time to go spend another 40 years back in the wilderness. They obviously didn't learn the lesson the first time around, so maybe getting stuck out in that desert again will help them out, give them time to think about what they've done. But the Lord doesn't do that. He not only continues to let them live in Cana, but through their foolish actions, the Lord actually adds to the number of people who follow and serve him. I love that. God uses their mistake to multiply the number of men and women who are his followers. This is is what I call failing upward. I don't know about you, uh, but in my own life, I see constant evidence that God has allowed me to fail upward. 
I mean, I look at my own struggles with sin, and, and then I look at my family and the church that God has blessed me with, and though I clearly fail so often to follow the Lord as I should, because of his grace, he has still continued to bless me in ways that I do not deserve. And he still continues to, to use me to further build his kingdom. And again, it's not that he's blessing me because of my sin, but in his grace, he is using even my own failings to advance his mission upward and onward. So at the end of the day, I hope it's clear that you are not to go and do likewise and use uh, the Israelites or the Gibeonites as models of morality for you to live your life by. Neither of them uh, are, are moral examples that we should follow, neither the Israelites or the Gibeonites. But through them, we can come to see more clearly about God's mercy and his grace and how he wants to pour out his mercy even on fools. The, the Gibeonites went from being deceptive liars to being devoted to the service of the Lord. And not only can God give mercy even to fools, but he can also give continued grace even to foolish followers as well. That to the Israelites, he wasn't just a, a God of second chances, but also third and fourth and fifth chances as well. And that gracious and merciful God that we read about in the Old Testament, he is still just as gracious and merciful today as he was then. And if you'll just submit your life to Christ, if you'll give your life to him, then you can discover this grace and this mercy for yourself. So let me pray. Father, I, I do just pray for each and every one of us in this room uh, that we would come to discover that all of us really are like the Gibeonites in so many ways. We are all deserving of destruction because of our sin. But because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, because of his death, his burial and resurrection, we have been offered an opportunity to avoid that wrath that should have been directed to us. Like the Gibeonites, we can, can instead be invited to become your servants. No greater reality exists than that. So, Father, I just pray that we would just come to realize just how precious and wonderful a truth that is. That through the gospel, we can be saved from sin. I just ask all of that in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.